0: We're going to be looking at the Book of Ruth for four weeks. So the month of May is going to be spent in the Book of Ruth. Uh, so hopefully these notes and the structure will help you understand what this book is about. If you are new to the book, I think it's it's just going to be a great experience for you. it's a, It's a wonderful story. In fact, I think as we as we start looking at it, it'd be appropriate to cue in an old Motown classic or Harry Connick Jr. to kind of sets things off, because it is a romantic story, and it's a romantic comedy, in fact. Uh, comedy in a sense that everything ends well for everybody. <laughs> that is the true meaning of comedy. It's not that it's funny, but it that ends well for everybody. It's not a tragedy. So we're going to be looking at this book for four weeks. I'm going to give you an introduction to the book. I think it's important to understand its context, also, as you're looking for it in your Bibles, I think it would be good for you to open your Bibles to the book. It's between the book of Judges and the book of First Samuel in the Old Testament, and it takes place in the, book of Jud- in the time of Judges. Now, Judges uh, was, a, was a bad time for Israel. Just to give you a little bit of a history behind it, Israel is taken out of slavery in Egypt. They're brought into this new land that is supposed to be a blessing to them. And God says, if you worship me and if you follow my law, there's lots of blessings for you in this land. But if you don't, I will discipline you to bring you back. So when you veer off, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to do hard things in your life to bring you back to myself. And so Israel, for several hundred years, during the time of the judges, is caught into, in this cycle. They forget God. God sends a famine or sends an oppression where a foreign power takes over for or sometimes for several decades. People remember that God can help them, so they cry out to to him. He sends a deliverer, sends a leader called a judge, a military leader usually who delivers God's people from oppression and occupation, and they return to the Lord only to repeat this cycle again, again, and again. And for many of us, that's our life, right? That's our cycle. We always do that, seem to do that. So bad time for Israel, time of social, political, religious turmoil, and that's where this book takes place. We have a book, We have a story of a family here, Naomi and Elimelech, a couple with two sons, Malon and, and Chilean. They are a Jewish family. They're followers of the Lord. They live in Bethlehem. This is where their land is. And yet, during a time of famine, they leave and go to another land, to Moab. Moab is not part part of God's gift to Israel. It's a different land to the east of Israel. And they go there to survive a famine. Bad things happen to them there. Elimelech dies. The two sons die. uh, But only after they they got married to Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. So that's the story of a return home. Naomi returns home to Bethlehem after that, that time in Moab returning because she heard that famine is over, and she could try to, try to figure out what to do with her life now that she has lost almost everybody that she loved. So that's the story. What I'd like you to do is, as you read this book, and I think that's a good idea for you to read this book on your own, not just listen on Sundays, but commit yourself to this book uh, for the next few weeks. As you read it, there's two things that I'd like you uh, to do. I'd like you to first read it as a story of Naomi. It's easy to read it as a story of Ruth, but it's not a story of Ruth. The main character here is Naomi. It's her arc. It's her transformation. Now, Ruth is very important, and we're going to talk a lot about Ruth, but it is essentially the story of Naomi. Naomi changes through the story. She starts out bitter and empty and then ends up with a full heart and a full faith, in the future. That's the arc. That's the transformation. That's what we're going to follow through in the next uh, three weeks, four weeks. Now, Ruth is, is very instrumental because it is Ruth's kindness that actually changes Naomi. So we'll see how God works through other people being kind to others. That's the point. So the theme of the book, if the main character is Naomi, the theme is kindness. It's people being kind to each other And through that, showing the kindness of God to his people. As Ruth is being kind to Naomi, as Boaz is being kind to Ruth and Naomi, it's all rooted in God's grace or God's kindness or God's steadfast love for his people. So that's our plan. As you read it, read it as a story of Naomi who experiences kindness and is healed through it. There's four chapters, which makes it really easy to break it down for a preacher, so it'll be four sermons. There's four acts to the story, four parts, four movements to the story. Act 1, which is chapter 1, we'll be dealing with today. It takes place on the road as they return to Bethlehem, and that has to do with Ruth's kindness to Naomi. Act 2, which is chapter 2, will be next week in the field, and this is Boaz's kindness to Ruth. Act 3 Chapter 3 takes place in the night. Ruth's kindness to Boaz. We'll see what that all means. Act 4, Chapter 4, takes place at the gate, where the redemption is uh, is enacted and the land is returned to Ruth's family. And that has to do with God's kindness, God's kindness to his people. So four chapters, four acts, one theme of kindness, one main character, Naomi. Let's get started with chapter 1 today. I'm going to read chapter 1 of Ruth, if you want to follow along and uh, see what we can learn from it. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, there were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two Moabite wives, the name, the name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth, they lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Well, that's the beginning of the story. What I'd like to do is I'd like to look at three characters, a bitter woman, namely Naomi, a kind woman, Ruth, and a gracious Savior, Jesus. And I will tell you how it all fits together as we go along. Let's look at Naomi first. Now, to get a glimpse in Naomi's inner world, how she sees herself, how she interprets her life, we need to look at verses 20 and 21. She returns to Bethlehem, her hometown, and she says to those who used to know her, so people, some of them, are not sure if it's her, back after 10 years or so. She says, do not call me Naomi, which means sweet or pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Man, what a, what a dark view of, of, of yourself. She's saying, I'm empty, bitter. The Lord is against me. There's nothing good in my life. She's saying, don't call me Naomi because it's too good of a name for me. Call me Mara, which means bitter because that's how I feel. She's saying. Now, this is a woman who, who has no hope. Why? What happened? Well, we know part of what happened, right? Her husband died, her two sons died. That's a tremendous tragedy to go through. Yes, many people are bitter when they get through something like this. But there's other things going on in her life. It's not just that she lost her husband and her sons. She lost any hope for a future. Remember, this is a different culture and a different time. At this time, your children and your land were what provided a future for you. She has neither. Her children are dead, and her land, they had to sell it when they moved to Moab. They needed money to move. So now she has no land, no children, no husband. There's nobody that will feed her, nobody who will give her any sort of hope for the future. She's saying, I left full, because I left with my husband, and I left with my... My sons, now I'm coming back empty. There's a, there's a tremendous, uh, tremendous hopelessness and desperation here. I want you to feel it. You need to, you need to see where, where Naomi is, is coming from. Her situation is utterly hopeless. She came uh, to Bethlehem to nothing and with nothing. She's got, she's got nothing in her life. But it's not just what happened to her that's important, but how she interprets what happens to her. Who is she blaming for all her troubles? Have you noticed? Very clear. Who do you think she she thinks is responsible for all her calamities, as she calls it? Who is that? Yeah, she's blaming God. She's absolutely blaming God for everything that happened in her life. She's saying, it is God whose hand is against me. She's saying, it is God who has testified against me. She's using legal language as if he is the opposing counsel. He is the prosecutor in her life who's finding her guilty and punishing her. She thinks it is God who sent a famine that they kicked him out of the land. She thinks it's God who killed her children and killed her husband. She is absolutely bitter towards God. It's not just that she's bitter. She's bitter towards God himself. And so this gives us a glimpse into how she sees God in general into her theology, into her understanding of who God is. And two things are, are absolutely clear in her mind when she thinks about God. One, God is completely in control of everything that happens in her life. She does not see herself apart from what God is doing at all. She's seeing God involved in every part of her life, making all these decisions that affect her. That's number one. God is sovereign. He's in control. He rules. But two, God is cruel. God doesn't care for me. God makes all these decisions and he does all these things in my life, but he doesn't care for me. He's not kind to me. He's not loving to me. He doesn't care. He just does what he wants because he's God and who can stop him, but he doesn't do it for me. Now, let me, let me encourage you to wrestle with this because you, quite possibly, might be in the very same spot that Naomi is. You look at your life and you say, well, sure, I believe in God, He must exist. He must do things in my life. But he sure doesn't seem like he loves me. Look at all the things I've lost. Look at all the things that happened to me. How can my life be in any way reflective of his kindness, of his love for me? All he does is bad things. All he does is hurt me. And so sure you would be bitter. Why not? If God is really treating you that way, why would you not be bitter and disillusioned and disappointed in him? Are you? I want you to be honest. You need, you need to be honest. Remember, this is a story of Naomi who starts there. She doesn't stay there. She will change, and she will come to understand that God really is kind to her. And We'll deal with that as we go on in the book. But you need to start where she starts if you are to get better, if you are to find hope in a future. If you are bitter, you need to acknowledge that. You need to say, God, I am bitter. You don't really seem like you're kind and loving to me. Doesn't seem like you care. Why would you take this away from me? Why would you take this person away from me? Why would you break up this relationship? Why would you give me this disease? Why would you give me this disability? Or, You know, you have to think honestly about these things. You have to wrestle with that. If you are to get better, you need to wrestle with what you're feeling right now. And if you are better, acknowledge that you're better. Don't be afraid to acknowledge it to God. as if he doesn't know, of course he knows. He cares. He wants you to say that. He wants you to pray like that and acknowledge it. And that's where Naomi is. She is bitter towards God. She is empty. She sees no hope and no future for herself. Now, if you are there, I'm going to press you on two points. These are important. These are true for Naomi, even though she doesn't see it. These are true for you. Two things as you wrestle with this. One, it is likely that like Naomi... You might be blind to specific expressions of God's kindness in your life, even now, so you assume that he is not kind at all. I am not saying that Naomi had no reason to feel what she felt. Of course she did. But there were other things in her life that she was utterly, completely blind to that God was doing. Let me show you what they are. When she says, I came back empty to Bethlehem, I came back with nothing. Is it true? No, it's not true. Who came with her? Ruth was with her. How do you think Ruth felt when Naomi says, I have nobody in this world who cares for me. Nobody loves me. Ruth is saying, you're saying this to me. I'm right here. What am I, chopped liver? I'm here. I'm with you. I left everything for you. And yet, Naomi doesn't see her, you see. It's Ruth that's going to get food for her, by the way. She's going to feed her. It's through Ruth's marriage to Boaz, and it's through Ruth's birth of of Obed later that that this hope is restored to Naomi, but she sees none of that because she's so bitter towards God. She's not going to acknowledge anything that's good in her life. What are some other good things in her life? Well, famine is over. Barley harvest is starting. This is a big deal. God is bringing food back into the land. God's discipline is over, and so God is blessing now. She doesn't see that. She survived a famine, by the way. Sure, her husband and her sons died, but she survived. She has her life. She's back at home. She doesn't see any of that. She doesn't acknowledge any of that as God's kindness to her. And finally, she doesn't see hope because she doesn't think of other people in her life who care for her. Sure, there's Ruth, but there's other people. She's got relatives in Bethlehem, like Boaz, like another guy. whom We we don't know who he is, but he's even a closer relative than Boaz. Those guys and others were responsible to help her. She should have turned to them. She should have remembered there's people who God has put in my life to care for me, who are responsible to restore land to me, to provide me with food and a future. And yet, she totally ignored them. Could it be that as you wrestle with bitterness, as you have one of those Tuesdays where you say, there's nothing right in my life, there's nobody who loves me, and you say it out loud to somebody who loves you in your life, could it be that God is in fact kind to you at least a little bit? Could it be that there are blessings in your life? Yes, of course there are blessings in your life. Look at your life. Is it really all bad? No, it's not all bad. Look for those glimpses of God's blessings. And yes, you will deal with the big issue of of, of God being against you, that's fine, but Do not discard what he's already doing in your life now, even as you wrestle with bitterness. He's placed people in your life who love you. He's given you things to live on. He's given you jobs and children and clothes and shelter, all that stuff. Acknowledge that as God's kindness to you. He's not against you. Now, you need to wrestle with your bitterness, but you need to be open to also what God is doing in your life. Now, the second thing I want to press you on as you wrestle with that is that it is likely that like Naomi, you may never actually have had a good theology of God, and you may never actually believe that God was good and kind to you, even before you started suffering. Here's the point, that Naomi, when she is dealing with this tremendous tragedy, doesn't believe that God is kind to her. I don't think she believed that God was kind to her even before that tragedy happened. Now, this is how I know. Because they left Bethlehem for Moab. It sounds like a practical decision. Oh, Moab has food. We don't have food. Let's go to Moab. But it's a spiritual decision. Why Moab? Why go to that land? There's history between Israel and Moab. When Israel was coming from Egypt, and they were, they were getting through different, different territories to get to their land in Canaan. Moab was one of those territories. And the king of Moab was scared of Israel. So he actually hired a prophet to curse them. Big shot from Mesopotamia to come in and, and, and pronounce this curse on Israel so they, would, so they would not touch Moab. They refused help uh, to help Israel. They refused to give them bread and food and water to help them and just to let them pass through. That's the history. You know what else happened at, at Moab? Israelites started sleeping with Moabite women. And Israel was flung into idolatry because they weren't just sleeping with them. They were also accepting their gods and their practices and their culture. This is all in the background. So when Elimelech and Naomi say, let's go to Moab, it seems ludicrous for them to do that. Bethlehem, which means the house of bread, by the way. They leave Bethlehem to go to Moab that gave them no bread. It's amazing. This is a spiritual decision. They have no regard for God. So they go to Moab. Sure, they believed God existed. Sure, they were afraid of God who could do anything. But they didn't love him. They never loved him. They never thought God was kind. They were running away from him. And they were willing to go even to Moab. Just to prove my point even more, Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 and 4, there's this passage that prohibits, specifically prohibits Moabites to come into Israel. No Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor, Mesopotamia, to curse you. They know that, and they go to Moab. You see, when they do that, they're saying, we don't think God loves us. We don't care that God loves us. We're going to do what we are going to do, even if that means going to Israel's enemies, even if it means we're going to let our sons marry Moabite women, and we know how that ended and the last time that happened. So here is my challenge to you. As you consider your view of God, you need to clarify it. You need to get the right perspective on God before you suffer. That's something that did not happen with Naomi. She's wrestling with God. She's saying, God is not kind. He's, he's not loving in the midst of suffering. But had she had a better perspective on God beforehand, she probably wouldn't have thought that. My experience is that people who have the right perspective on God, who believe that he is both powerful and loving together, powerful and loving, when suffering hits, in fact, they get closer to God, and they realize that God is even more kind and more loving than they had thought before. But those who never thought God was kind, when suffering comes, well, that's just a confirmation that he's not kind. This just a confirmation he's cruel all along. It just proves the point. So prepare to suffer by learning about the kindness of God now before you suffer. If you have children, teach your children to suffer well before they suffer. Give them this theology of God that acknowledges that he's both powerful and kind, and that he can be trusted even when those things happen later in life. And they will happen, of course they will. We all suffer. But when you suffer you fall back on what you know about God. And in the times of prosperity and and certainty, you learn that God is kind. You learn that God is powerful. When suffering comes, you are ready. Well, that's Naomi. That's her experience. That's her theology. This is why she's bitter. This is why she's empty. This is why she's blind to God's blessings in her life. Now let's look at Ruth and her kindness to Naomi. Now you see Ruth was used by God to heal this bitterness and emptiness in Naomi's life. And there's an arc, there's a story that will eventually get through all those elements to see exactly what happens to Naomi. But Ruth's kindness is used by God to help Naomi. Now, you remember that Naomi had two daughters-in-law, right? Orpah and Ruth. Both were encouraged to go with her, or both could, at least. One stayed, and Ruth Went with Naomi. What's the difference? Why is it that one person's kindness happened and the other one was not kind to Naomi? Now remember, in that time, you know, both of those women were faced with with a really important choice. There was no hope that they would marry anybody else from Naomi's family. Naomi could not produce any more children. She had no husband. She was old. And back in those days, that's what would happen. If a brother died, his brother would step in and marry his widow to propagate the line, to to take care of his family. Now, in this case, there's no other brothers. There's only two. There's only two, and they're dead. There's no hope. She knows Naomi, she's not going to marry anybody. And so, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to do what Orpah did stay home, go to your mom and dad, have them help you find a husband, have them help you arrange your future. What Orpah did was, was exactly what was expected to do. That's why Naomi is releasing them from that obligation. She's saying, go, go to your, your, your father and mother's house. Go find husbands. May you find rest in your husband's house. She knows what's involved. And Orpah does that. And it is totally understandable. It totally makes sense. Now, of course, what, what is not in this text and what some scholars tell you that Orpah was going back to a very successful career in the media. Of course, you may have heard of the Orpa show on the Moabite Network, the very successful O, the Orpa magazine, and of course, the, the Hopro Studios that, that you may be familiar with. I just got to tell you this, it did not go over well in the first service either. But, but it was so funny to me when I thought of that. I, I, I couldn't hold back. Ruth, on the other hand, did something utterly remarkable. What Ruth did was almost unimaginable. She forsook everything she had, any prospect of of, a future that she had in her own land, support of her family, support of her culture, possibility of marriage, possibility of prosperity, so that she could go with Naomi. This is amazing. Nobody does that. She said, I'm going to go to another land, To another culture. Why do people usually do that? For a better life. Not in her case. She knew that her life was going to be worse. She was going to be marginalized because she's a Moabite. Not just a foreigner, but a Moabite that's not even allowed to go to the temple. That's where she's going. She's going with this old woman who who has no prospect of a future herself. And yet she goes because she's kind to Naomi. This is amazing that she would do that. One commentator describes her choice in this way. He says, Ruth stands alone. She possesses nothing. No God has called her. No deity has promised her blessing. No human being has come to her aid. She lives and chooses without a support group, and she knows that the fruit of her decision may well be the emptiness of rejection, indeed of death. Consequently, not even Abraham's leap of faith surpasses this decision of Ruth's. And there is more. Not only has Ruth broken with family, country, and faith, but she has also reversed sexual allegiance. A young woman has committed herself to the life of an old woman rather than to the search for a husband. One female has chosen another female in a world where life depends on men. There is no more radical decision in all the memories of Israel. This is high praise for that decision. I think this this commentator is right. Abraham, remember, was making a similar decision, but he had a promise of God. Ruth has no specific promise from God. God is not telling her, you must go to this land where I will bless you. No, she just goes because of Naomi. The only thing she gains from this is God. That's the only advantage of going to Israel for her. Because that's where God is. That's where his people are. This is the land of his blessing. And so one preacher said, in effect, her decision was, I'm going to stay here and keep everything but lose God, or I'm going to go to Jerusalem and get God, or to Bethlehem and get God but lose everything else. It's everything minus Yahweh minus the Lord, or it's Yahweh minus everything. That's the choice. It's a radical choice that she makes it. And she goes. I think I know why. I think it's because she believed in that God. I think it's because she got converted. For all the incomplete theology of Naomi, for all the messed up lives of her family and the bitterness that they have sensed towards the Lord, they still told her about this God of Israel. And she listened, and something happened in her heart, and she changed. Now, how do I know that? She's using a name for God that is very unusual for her to use. She's using the name Yahweh. So when she says, may the Lord do so and more to me, when she says that, that word the Lord is not a generic word for God. It's a covenant name. She's saying, may Yahweh, this God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, may this God be in my life, she's saying. And then Boaz later on in in, uh, chapter 2, verse 12, recognizes her faith. He commends Ruth for her faith In the Lord, he says, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. She has come to take refuge under the wings of Yahweh. And she was going to give up everything for him. It didn't matter that she was giving up her culture and her family and her faith that she had in her own deities back home. She gave it all up for God and to help Naomi. It's a decision like that, friends, that tells you and tells others if you really are converted, if you really follow the Lord. And we must be challenged by that. How many times have you seen believers, those who profess to be Christians, who are involved in church, who come on Sundays and they go to prayer meetings, when the right romantic relationship comes about, they're gone just like that. When the right amount of fame comes into their life, they're gone just like that. When a career opportunity opens up, they're just gone. And everybody else says, oh, oh, I think they didn't really believe. Because this is more important. And when that thing happened that is more important, they're gone. Sure, they believed in some sense. They added Jesus to their lives. They participated in religious activities. But it was, it was something to be added to their lives. It was something extra. It wasn't central. It wasn't why they lived. It wasn't the most important thing. And when the most important thing comes along, yeah, everything else goes away. Jesus is no longer important. So as you wrestle with your faith, as you look into your own heart, and you say, okay, am I truly converted? There's lots of questions you can ask yourself. One question is, what would I do in a decision like that? Now, you don't know until you have that decision. You can't plan for it, but you can tell where your heart leans. If you say, what if I had a choice between God and my health, and my family, and my job, whatever else you put in that category that is important to you. And I'm not saying that that's not important. But whatever it is, put it in that other category and say, if I had to choose one or the other, what would I choose? Where does your heart go? Does your heart cling to that? Or does your heart say... I will go where God leads me. Yes, I'm scared. Yes, I don't know how it's going to end. But he's better. He's more important to me. If I don't have him, it doesn't matter what else I have. Please, examine your heart. Don't be flippant about your faith. Don't just be superficial about it. and Call yourself a Christian without examining where your allegiance really is. Now, we must finish this sermon by looking at Jesus, a gracious Savior. When you read the rest of the book, you will see how Ruth's kindness helps restore hope for Naomi. And as you look at your life, I'm sure you have people in your own life who were kind to you, who were loyal to you, who were good friends and are good friends to you, that, that caused you to get closer to God. I think most conversion stories, if not all conversion stories, involve another person. Somebody told you about Jesus. I think about my own life, and I think, yeah, Eric and Barbara hanson That's who told me about Jesus. I became a Christian by God's grace, but God used them to share the gospel with me. They were friends. They were good friends. They were loyal. They were kind to me. God used them to change me, to heal me. And as I look at the rest of my life and all the big decisions I had to make, all the the big spiritual events in my life when I really understood something new. Yeah, there's usually people around. There's usually friends who are speaking to me that I'm speaking to, that I'm learning from. It's probably like that in your life, right? Are you a friend like that to someone else? Like Ruth, who's saying, I'm going to be kind to you, even though you are bitter and empty, but I'm going to be kind to you because, why? Because God is kind to me. That's the foundation. You see, we can't just look at Ruth and say, I'm going to be like Ruth, leave everything, go and help this old woman. No, you can't say that because you don't have the resources inside of you to do that. And if you're honest with yourself, yeah, you know that you don't have enough within yourself to do that. But where does it come from? It doesn't come from within. It comes from without. It comes from someone else who is kind to you. And if you get a hold of that kindness of God, If you are impressed and overwhelmed by his kindness to you in Jesus, then you will be kind to others. If not, it will be superficial, it will be fleeting. But the deep loyalty, this good friendship, this great kindness that Ruth has to to Naomi comes from her experience of kindness of God in her life. She got converted, she learned that God is kind, and that motivated her to be kind to Naomi. So how do you know that God is kind? That's the big question of the book. How do you know that God is kind? Look at Jesus. Look at what God has done for you. Jesus was the ultimate immigrant, the ultimate refugee. He gave up much more than Ruth gave up, and Ruth gave up a lot. But Jesus gave up much more, forsaking the security of his relationship with the Father, a harmonious, fulfilling relationship with God, The heir of the universe forsakes it all. Why? To be kind to you, to be kind to me. To come and minister to us. That passage that that Dave read at the call to worship, that talks about Jesus emptying himself. Friends, this is how you get full through his emptiness. You see, Jesus came and he gave everything up, emptied himself so that he can give everything and he's emptied himself from to you. And you can be full. Naomi could be full. There could be blessings in your life. Your faith could be restored. Your future could be bright because of Jesus. And if you think on that, no matter what else is going on in your your life, it does not compare to what Jesus has done for you. What Jesus did decidedly proved to you that God is kind, that God is loving. Jesus came to live as a refugee in a foreign land where he was going to be marginalized. And not just fearing assault like Ruth later in the book, but haven't been arrested and haven't been judged guilty for a crime he didn't commit. Haven't been sentenced to death and haven't been put to death in fact for you. That's the story of Jesus. This is the, guy, the kindness of God exemplified on display for you. And as you look back at that, you've got to filter everything else that's going on in your life through that. God is kind to you so you can be kind to others. God is kind to you on the cross and in the empty tomb, so you can see and look at your life and say, there are blessings in my life. God has not forgotten me. He is not against me. Whatever is happening, he is not testifying against me in the courtroom, like Naomi thinks, because Jesus is my advocate in the courtroom, and there's no condemnation, there's no guilty verdict that is going to be given to me ever. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the kindness of God, and if you get this Everything else changes. If you don't get this, it's just effort. It's just discipline. It's just making yourself do that. I'm going to finish by quoting a hymn we're going to sing. There's a verse in this hymn that talks about Jesus. He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy, all immense and free. For, oh my God, it found out me. Has it found out you? Have you been changed by the kindness of God through Christ? If you have, you come to the stable with your brothers and sisters, with your friends, and you celebrate the kindness of God. And you rejoice that His love never fails, that it's steadfast, that His loving kindness is always on your side. If you're not a believer, don't come to the table. Don't don't just do it for show. But come to Jesus. See that he is kind towards you. He's not a cruel God. He's powerful and kind at the same time. He loves you and he wants you to be his friend.